Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, electronic warfare keeps Pentagon leaders up at night. The intersection of the cloud and artificial intelligence for national security and the AI portfolio grows at the Labor Department. It's Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The General Services Administration's extending its deadline for the Polaris contract again. Candidates for the first two pools of the contract have until August 19th to submit their bids. The deadline before the extension was August 10th. The sponsors of a new IT acquisition bill in the Senate say it would support more and better agile acquisition in the executive branch. The bill would make it easier for agencies to buy commercial technology. It would provide training for buying IT and communications technology, too. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Undersecretary of the Army says electronic warfare keeps him up at night. Gabe Camarillo says the Army will continue to invest in EW capabilities. Jack Wilmer is CEO of CoreForce. He's former Chief Information Security Officer at the Defense Department. Jack, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. One of the things that, that one of the reasons these leaders keep saying that these electronic warfare concepts keep them up at night is security. You're bailiwick when you were in the department. What do you see as these as these leaders continue to to talk about the importance of electronic warfare and information warfare and the security needed therein to keep that stuff secure. Welcome. Thank you, Francis. I uh, really appreciate you having me back on the program. Um, you, you know, one of the things that really struck me when uh, when I heard those comments is is frankly how accurate it is. I mean, that's a critically important component for us. Uh, and I think, frankly, if you look at what's been going on overseas, uh, I think one of the earliest stories that came out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine was around Starlink and how the Russians uh, were able to jam Starlink. But I think way more impressive and surprising than that was how quickly uh, Starlink was able to adjust their frequencies and mitigate the Russian jamming so the Ukrainians could continue to communicate. Uh, and so to me, one of the major things that that we spent a time a lot of time looking at from a security perspective was how do we enable our military to be more agile uh, and there seems to be a, a tension between sort of you know good security and locking everything down and being agile uh, but i actually think that the more we really dug into it and you know all the wonderful buzzwords like devsecops and things like that uh, technologies that as we uh, make advancements in our systems, we can actually do things in a way that provide greater flexibility uh, and allow us to respond to uh, to changes on the battlefield in a much more rapid manner uh, while maintaining that strong security posture. So when you were talking about Starlink and, and you got to agility, I scribbled down the word resilient too, which is a number that you use in security all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's really about agility leading to resilience. I, I think to your point, I would imagine that um, people on the battlefield care much more about resilience than agility. I think agility is what enables you to get to those resilient systems. And again, I think that part of the, the fear that exists is that 
you know, things that are different are inherently less secure or less stable than, than things that have been through, you know, massive rounds of testing and everything else. And, you know, at the end of the day, especially in cybersecurity, that's not necessarily true, right? Because we discover new vulnerabilities. Uh, so systems that at one point were deemed to be secure uh, now have gaping holes because of things we've now discovered. So the point is, uh, situations change, and we have to make sure that our systems are able to adapt as those situations change. Uh, and then to your comment about resilience, it's critically important to me that that resilience is built into the systems so that they understand that they can fail. You know, that should be a part of all good testing is actually taking down components of systems and seeing how they respond, as opposed to assuming that we're going to be able to keep everything up and running uh, in perpetuity. How do you do that, though, understanding that it's not going to be possible to test every contingency and that you don't know, like if you're the Russians, you don't know that they're going to figure out as quickly as they figured out how to change those frequencies and that you've got to jam a different set of frequencies. And maybe you don't have the gear that you need to do that because you're not as well prepared as the rest of the world thought you were. And, and I think that, you know, to that comment, that's exactly where the resiliency gets in. And I think it really is about that changing mindset, right? If your assumption is that um, we are going to be able to uh, fight exactly the way that we plan to in the very beginning, uh, then you're going to be disrupted by uh, someone else that's able to change faster. I think that if we go in with, uh, again, to use your word of resilience, with that as the underpinning of our uh, philosophy, then I think that that gives us a lot more flexibility uh, so that as conditions change, we expect them to change and we know we're going to need to be able to change our systems with that. So I'm no expert in war fighting and strategy and so on, but I wonder if sometimes the idea of making a system completely hardened completely mature security wise isn't the enemy of the good because I, I it strikes me that you don't have to necessarily have a perfect system it just has to be better than the other guys and so am i thinking about it wrong no i i i think that you know the funny thing is i would say yes and no it, it's really situationally dependent uh, I remember uh, one of my predecessors a guy named Richard Hale uh, and listening to him speak and he made the comment of you know, this was back when it was very popular to talk about assume breach. So assume that all of your systems are breached and, and that sort of thing. And and his comment was, you know, if I'm the pilot of an airframe uh, that has a missile uh, on it, that's a smart missile or a smart bomb, I don't know that I feel that comfortable assuming that that thing is breached and it could go off at any point. So uh, in other words, I think that there's some cases where uh, it is extremely important. And especially as you start dealing with life safety systems, things like that, uh, to have that, uh, you know, not just kind of resilience built in, but also the hardening uh, around that. Um, but I think that those are also the things that make the problems that we're talking about, frankly, more difficult, because uh, a lot of what we are talking about are, you know, things that are integrated with or touch, you know, life safety systems. Uh, and those are things that there needs to be a substantial less amount of tolerance for taking risk in. Uh, but I think that, again, getting back to that word resilience, I think that at the end of the day, if we fast forward to when we've completed all of our modernization activities and we have all these systems that are linked together and tying sensors to shooters and all that sort of thing. Um, I think that the resilience has to be a key component of that so that understanding that we can rapidly deploy uh, updates to systems that are, you know, all of a sudden rendered ineffective by an adversarial system that we didn't expect. Um, I, I think it's going to be a key piece of that process. And that becomes even more and more important and complex 
given the advancements that both we are making and our potential adversaries are making with artificial intelligence and machine learning applications where, you know, to the, the, the analogy you just gave about the missile, if they can, if the adversary can tell the missile that it should go off now instead of after it's been discharged from the aircraft, it can also do any number of other things that our artificial intelligence algorithms uh, are capable of doing, all of which would be bad if they weren't uh, under our command. So I imagine that just it, it accelerates all of the ways that people should be thinking about this, Jack. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, artificial intelligence is probably one of my favorite topics uh, that I've looked at over the past five or six years. And, um, you know, I think that there's some very specific tactical things uh, that the department has done and put out in terms of its use on artificial intelligence. Uh, one of the things that I've seen that's a really positive thing is, is uh, I've seen the last three administrations building off of the work that the administration before did. Uh, where I think you know, a lot of times in politics, there's a tendency towards saying like, all right, we're going to throw out everything the last guy did. We're going to go do all new stuff. Uh, I think that in the areas of IT modernization, in the areas of artificial intelligence, uh, I think there's a broad recognition that these are not partisan issues. These are things that are critical to the future of the country. Uh, there's tons of military applications, as you mentioned. Uh, there's tons of ethical issues um, and you know, lots of different perspectives across the board. But I think that uh, the forward progress that I've seen and, and how we can harness, for example, the power of cloud computing to be able to help uh, drive advancements in artificial intelligence you know, has applications way beyond the military. Uh, and I think that ultimately is going to be a key component in ensuring that our economy uh, is competitive on the global stage in that space. What is what's the importance of that continuation of work from administration to administration? That when I first came to Washington thirty years ago or whatever it was, it was generally accepted that a new administration would come in and kind of start not start over, but that it was challenging to get that continuation. What's changed that, do you think, over the last 15 to 20 years, Jack? Yeah, I, I would say, if anything, the tendency to do that has probably increased. Oh. Uh, and so I was I was fortunate enough to get to spend two years detailed to the White House. But I think that the biggest learning that I had there is the most success uh, that I was involved in and successful initiatives that uh, that that I uh, was able to lead and participate in were things that we were building off of the prior administration. And uh, like I said, the things that make me feel really good right now is because they were not tied in with any kind of, you know, partisan political stuff. Uh, the current administration is able to build off of that. And so when you look at areas like, for example, federal IT modernization, that's all about how do we make sure that the government can better serve its citizens? That's a hard thing. No one's going to argue against that, right? I mean, that's a it's a pretty clear thing that uh, everyone should have as a goal. You know, where you can argue is how much money should we spend doing that, those types of things. Uh, but in general, I think the plans that we put in place and building on that, uh, some of the successes that we had in terms of establishing centers of excellence at the General Services Administration, things like that, uh, the Technology Modernization Fund, lots of 
uh, smaller uh, pieces like there are, are good pieces of infrastructure that I think this administration can now take and build on and, and you know, achieve some additional successes in that space. All right. I take you back to the comment at the beginning of our conversation from Gabe Camarillo, the undersecretary of the Army. Electronic warfare keeps him up at night. That's just kind of the life that folks that make those career choices are going to live with forever from now on, isn't it? That's just the world we live in today and moving forward, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think that there there was a broad recognition uh, back when I was in the Pentagon of the importance of, you know, MSO, you know, electromagnetic uh, spectrum. Just that whole space, I think, is, um, it is just continuing to increase in importance. So I agree with you uh, completely. I think, you know, there, there will always be things that keep people up at night. I think that is definitely going to be one of the challenges that our department uh, is facing for the next, you know, at least five to 10 years. Jack Wilmer, it's great to talk to you again, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Great to talk to you as well. Thank you very much, Francis. You can read more about electronic warfare in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We want you to nominate leaders in the federal IT community. You can read more about how to nominate someone through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Machine Learning and Artificial Intelligence Subcommittee of the National Science and Technology Council at the White House reports cloud computing can accelerate the implementation of AI for research. Major General Peter Gallagher, U.S. Army, retired as Senior Vice President for Technology and Solutions at CACI. He's former director of the Army Futures Command Network Cross-Functional Team and Chief Information Officer J6 at U.S. Central Command. General, welcome. It's great to see you again. Thanks for coming back. What do you see as the intersection between the cloud and the artificial intelligence and machine learning applications that the department is really, really trying to push aggressively? Welcome, sir. Well, well thank you. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to meet with you again, Francis. And and. I will tell you, I think as we talk about the cloud, right, and especially with 35 years, you know, of, as a career signal officer, you know, the, the one thing that uh, we've always been trying to provide is commanders and warfighters the ability to make decisions with speed and precision as much as possible. And so I've seen, you know, the Intel community uh, adopted the cloud uh, a few years back, secure cloud, and the military has been moving in that direction. And I, I believe that you know, the key is really how can you hyperscale capability uh, for, you know, decision maker to, at, at every every level from the enterprise all the way down to the tactical edge, to be able to make decisions with speed and be able to do so in an environment that is efficient, uh, you know, it's manageable in terms of fiscal resources, it's uh, efficient in, in the use of hardware, software, applications, and things like that. And it's also effective in, in the decision-making process, and it allows, you know, leaders, commanders to converge effects, to synchronize warfighting functions, and do all the kinds of things that need to be done. And, and that's just the military application. Uh, but it's also an opportunity to, to make things more secure uh, because you, you you can containerize and integrate solutions in a in a cloud, you know, with the in a, at the right protection level and you can basically you know continue to uh, 
assess vulnerabilities and make corrections right away, which I think is one of the big things. So what makes the cloud very um, you know, effective for the variety of departments across the federal government. And so the intersection for cloud AI and machine learning, I mean, you know, really the desire to take the human out of the loop in decision-making. So automate where you can, leverage, uh, you know, algorithms and, and software development and, and, you know, the ability to, to do things like, you know, create decision aids and, and decision-making tools um, leverage things like machine learning and, and algorithms and, and deep learning where the computer and the power of the computer can do the majority of the work and, and really simplify, you know, things that uh, were very manual and very laborious in the past and really try to accelerate the speed of decisions. And so there is so much data out there that leaders on every echelon, okay, I mean, senior leaders are dealing, you know, at the highest level from the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman all the way down to that squad leader on point. I mean, they're, they're trying to synthesize a variety of, of uh, inputs and take that data and quickly make a decision. And so from the enterprise side, leveraging the cloud, the, the ability to kind of in sanctuary with the, build the right tools uh, and the right capabilities uh, and containerize them in a way that not where you're wedded to a specific cloud provider, but make, you know, operating you know, getting solutions that are cloud agnostic, you know, whether you're using Microsoft Azure, you know, Amazon Web Services, another cloud service provider, a mill cloud solution, regardless of who the provider is of the cloud capability, it's important to have that containerization and the virtualization so the algorithms and the software development can be done. And then it can be hyperscaled and it can be rolled out. So that nexus of being cloud enabled uh, doesn't take away the dependency for edge computing. And that edge computing has got to be optimized. So the decision aids and the software development and, and artificial intelligence algorithms and, and those capabilities that get developed in the cloud get rolled out uh, to an edge computing solution that, that hopefully can meet the needs when a commander or a force is you know, disconnected uh, or they're, uh, you know, have a low bandwidth situation or the the ties back to sanctuary are severed. And so I, I really do think that uh, cloud has changed the game uh, and, and the ability to outsource uh, the things that you don't need to do yourself as, as a federal agency and, and be a, a demanding customer of the, of the experts, I think is a good thing. I, I do think the ability for um, the government to spend you know, the resources wisely and do only those things only they can do. And, and so that's why I think that there's been a lot of big push, a, a big push over the last several years to really move to the cloud. Uh, it boils down to the three big things I've talked about. Uh, more effective in decision-making, much more efficient use of resources, both human resources and, and hardware and software, computing resources and all that, because it, it's just too hard for the federal agencies to sustain all that and replace all that and upgrade all that, you know, and. Uh, and, and so, and as a service solution is the way to go. And then more importantly, the security aspect, that, that's that third pillar there is, is critical. Does, does that answer your question? It does. And I want to come back to the security element in a moment, General, but um, you mentioned edge computing. And one of the developments that I'm tracking, and a couple of folks have mentioned it both in government and, and from the outside as you are, 
uh, over the last couple of weeks is the ability that the department is pursuing of edge device to talk directly to edge device without the uh, data information having to come back to earth or, or come back to ground. And I wonder what the potential security implication of that is. And it, I, I thought the comment that you made about the cloud was interesting. You said cloud's more secure because when this process began 15, 20 years ago, when the government started thinking about the cloud, that was the huge concern. How can the cloud be as secure as my data centers? And now the exact opposite is, seems to be the case. I don't know if it's the exact opposite, but, but I will tell you weapon systems and program of record systems uh, because many of them are not connected to the cloud all day, every day. In many cases, they're, they're, they're either in a, you know, some sort of uh, connex or, or uh, a motor pool, or, or for example, they're not always on. So it, what has happened in the past is, is, you know, it's been a very manual uh, response to, to actually uh, you know, in, install patches, for example, things like that. And so what I meant by that is if you're connected to the cloud and the, and from the cloud, you can centrally manage and distribute, you know, patches and response to vulnerabilities that, that can be done relatively quickly and it doesn't require a 90 day cycle. It can be done within, you know, 90 seconds to 90 minutes, depending on, on, on how it's done. And so I think from that aspect, you know, response uh, and, and, and protection uh, is, is better when it's cloud enabled. When, when the warfighter is cloud enabled, it can be done fairly quickly. But there is a need to connect those end devices. Endpoint security is a critical limiting factor. And so making sure that uh, having visibility of the endpoints, uh, that, that's the weakest link. And, uh, and you know, there's a lot of new designs with uh, software to find everything, serverless architecture. Um, there will be a need for edge computing. And in some cases, it, it's a forward instantiation of a cloud. And that may happen on an, an aviation platform, uh, an aircraft, or it could happen on an unmanned platform where you've got a computing resource that, that is connected through a mesh network, or a vehicular platform, for example, or, or a sea-based platform. So access, uh, you know, within, you know, range of, of connectivity it will enable that edge device. In many cases, smart devices, when disconnected completely, and you see it when you fly on an airplane, you have your smart device, there are things you can do when you're connected to the cellular network and then when you're on the airplane there are limiting things you, you have a limited ability when you're in airplane mode but you still have the ability right there, there are certain things you can do if you downloaded movies or if you you know download certain apps you can continue to function and leverage your device and then you can obviously leverage it in a bigger way once you reestablish the calm but i think it's very similar in nature and so when you're on an airplane um, you know, in, in an airplane mode, you're not going to be connecting device to device. And so smart devices, wearables, you know, edge devices that soldiers are leveraging, unless there's a direct link to a mesh network, there is going to be a requirement to have some sort of transport for that device to device connectivity. But it doesn't necessarily have to reach back to a server or to a cloud in order to do that. And so we're seeing a lot of that today with the mesh networks that have been rolled out. Service members can share situational awareness and, and decision aids and, and all of those types of things without reach back to the cloud, which I think is critical because our soldiers in a, will be operating in a contested environment. They're going to be contested in space. They're going to be contested in you know the electromagnetic spectrum and also in you know in cyberspace. And so the ability for you know smart devices uh, in the hands of, of service members. Uh, to be able to help them make decisions is critical. And then access to those edge computing resources that 
are an inst a forward instantiation of the same algorithms that we talked about developing in the cloud. So if you can containerize it and develop it in the cloud, and in Sanctuary, you work through all the configuration management and challenges and the coding and all that, and then it simplifies and takes the burden off of a communicator in the field uh, where they've got optimized edge computing, and the only thing they need to worry about is reestablishing the link when they're, when they're disconnected. Does that make sense? It does, sir, and I appreciate your time today. It's great to have you back on the program. Thank you very much, Francis. I really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to the next time. You can read more about warfighting at the edge in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's happening September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup of stars and sign up through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Agencies across government are applying artificial intelligence to a growing portfolio of tasks. Sanjay Koyani is the chief technology officer at the Department of Labor. In this highlight from a new video series at fedscoop.com, he tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash his agency has a lot of AI and machine learning projects in the pipeline. In, the, in our chief information officer shop, the, the, we, we converted to a completely shared service environment about a few years back where now all of the agencies, uh, IT applications and staff are, were consolidated as a shared service entity through, um, through, through the CIO office. And so one area that we're very focused on is how do we create value and impact for the agencies and how do we leverage some of these new technologies to drive that work? So in my role as CTO and coming in and re-looking at the office, one thing I established was an emerging technology program specifically to start looking at how do we use artificial intelligence, emerging technology like RPA to really advance some of our programmatic work. And so our journey now is to really understand what are the agency's business needs. We then determine what solutions are best for those in emerging tech, artificial intelligence and so forth are things that we, we see as really having an application an area that we're starting to look at right now, especially as we move to a, a, a real cloud-driven environment, is what kind of cognitive services uh, our agency is looking for that AI and cloud can really help to advance. So we started doing a lot of pilots around speech-to-text, text-to-speech, translation services, uh, form recognition services, and even some things around how to identify fraud. And, uh, and, and, and by having these cloud services available, and a lot of them have AI enabled already on that. We're also aware of their areas where we could really improve services based on some pilots we want to, we want to drive forward. Uh, one thing that I, I'll say, White, that's really been important to our journey is that uh, because AI, the AI program is relatively new, uh, we've been looking at how do we create a framework for how we deliver this beyond uh, just, just these pilots. So one thing we early on in the process was to assess agency readiness, the importance of culture and culture change and, 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 and agency's willingness and readiness to, draw, to uh, participate in some of these areas. And so we, that's, that's not lost on us. One thing we, we have are these client engagement managers that work with the different agencies and they go out and they try to understand what are the needs, um, where can we create education around the, the benefits of artificial intelligence and cloud innovation to the work that they're doing 
And so that engagement, that understanding, under knowing what people are ready for is really key. The other thing that we, we created with the AI program was an innovation, incubation, and testing program. So as we're testing out these AI services, how do we formally have the process for uh, determining proof of concepts, pilots, KPIs? Is the juice worth the squeeze on what we're trying to test out? And if the capability isn't mature enough, do we really want to uh, continue going with it? Or is there another uh, cloud-enabled AI service that could really do the job better? And we found that like with translation services, we tried out a couple of different cloud-based services uh, it, it, it turned out that for our needs, Google at the time was, was delivering the best AI translation services for what the agency was trying to do. So um, understanding that, the, the, you know, the, the, having a good business case. And the other key thing that we've really learned along the way is the importance of governance and operations that whenever we want to do these things, um, we need to get our security folks involved on the front end. We need to get the operations folks involved in the front end. The first thing our chief information officer will ask us is where, where's the cost model and how are we going to not only build this thing out but pay for it over time so uh the, the, the those key elements and, and having those discussions on the front end as well as uh do we have the infrastructure do we have the staff um and uh and, and are we able to sustain what we're creating are all really important maturity elements that we uh that we try to build into um our thinking and our ability to, to, to predictably and more reliably, reliably deliver these services. Sanjay Koyani, the Chief Technology Officer at the Labor Department, that's a highlight of a new video with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the entire video in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.